0: I just wanted to um, mention that it's it's really easy to oversell things um, and build them up to the point where uh, other people's expectations are just impossible uh, to meet. I don't know if you've ever been in a scenario like that, but it's the you know it's the best taco I've ever eaten, or it's the best movie for the decade, or whatever it is. Uh, these high bar expectations that we set, uh, we live in a in an over-promising and under-delivering culture. So will the car that I buy really revolutionize my life? Right? Will the kind of dental insurance I have give me freedom? I mean, you start taking these commercials and things that we hear, and you run them through what's actually true, and you end up with a lot of over-promising and under-delivering Well, this morning we come to a place in Scripture where the promises that have preceded us and the reality of those promises are going to meet in Acts chapter 2, okay? If you remember from the past few weeks, Jesus has arisen and ascended, but he didn't do so after saying in Luke 24 these words, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Do you remember that in Acts 1, how he told them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait to be, quote, baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so they do that. They pray, and they wait, and they pray, and they wait, and they pray, and they wait. They complete the, uh, the apostle roster, right, by adding uh, and replacing Judas. This, the chapter 1 is a chapter of expectation for what's going to come in chapter 2. They probably felt a little bit like my son Hudson does when it gets close to his birthday. He has no concept of time whatsoever. So you could tell him it's in six months and he'll think it's going to happen in five minutes. <laughs> or, so the, the closer his birthday gets, it's like, is today the day? Is the next 15 minutes when the party's going to happen? And he just, he's in this angst about it because he's just not sure when it's going to be. You can imagine these disciples feeling that way. Not many days from now. Well, how many is that, right? How long do we wait? But those expectations that are coming in chapter 2 are much, much bigger than just that group of apostles or that group of 120 who are gathered together. They go back hundreds and hundreds of years. People have been waiting for chapter 2 of Acts for a long time. And we know certain things are prophesied in the Old Testament, like the Messiah, right? We know about uh, which tribe he's going to be born from and some of the details of his life. But what we don't remember oftentimes is that the hope of the Holy Spirit is also prophesied in the Old Testament. There's an expectation that is given in passages like Ezekiel 36, when the prophet says, "...and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." See, there's a lot of hanging questions from the Old Testament still. Like, how is Abraham going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth? How is that going to work out? How is David's son, the the coming Davidic ruler, when is he going to actually take charge and start to rule? How is that going to work? There's lots of covenantal questions that are lingering And so, it's no wonder that when Jesus says, it's just going to be a couple days, they ask, well, is the kingdom now? Because that expectation was given in the Old Testament. And after all this waiting, generation after generation after generation, it finally comes in our chapter this morning. There are lots of questions that um, people ask about the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard them. What gifts does He empower How does he lead? How does he actually speak through Scripture? There's lots of factors when it comes to the Holy Spirit. There's lots of nuanced types of questions. But all those nuanced questions, we can kind of forget a real basic main one, which is this. Why is he here? What did he come to do? If I asked you that about Jesus, right, why did Jesus come? You might be able to explain well, he came to be an atoning sacrifice for sin and to live a perfect life and to raise. And, but why is the Holy Spirit here? And that matters because if the Holy Spirit is resident within each one of us, wouldn't it be good to know why he's in us? That'd be a really important thing to know. And so here's my hope this morning, that in seeing how the Holy Spirit comes, we actually learn why he's here and we join him in that purpose. Look at how He comes, and based on how He comes, that will show us and teach us why He's here at all, and how do we join with Him in His plans and in His purposes. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. If you would stand for the reading of Scripture, uh, I'll read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21 this morning. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. There's some Bibles in the lobby. If you forgot yours or you need one, please grab one. And here's what God's Word says. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And we were all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked. Mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. You can be seated. I want to work through this passage in three stages, pointing out the sovereign spirit's dramatic entrance, answering this group's question, what does this mean, and then looking at a spirit for all and a savior for all. So in verses 1 through 4, we see this dramatic entrance, and entrances are important, right? You've probably heard sermons about how Jesus came to earth, and what that means, and why that matters. So he came from a lowly virgin, right? Born in a manger, Shepherds got the birth announcement first. You've heard all that stuff, and all that instructs us and teaches us about what Jesus is like and what he's come to do. So I want to point out two things about this entrance of the Holy Spirit, when he enters and how he enters, when he enters and how he enters. It says when the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, It was the second of a series of harvest festivals, um, oftentimes called the Feast of Weeks in Scripture. Uh, But the important thing to note here is that the Spirit chose to come to Jerusalem when it was jam-packed with people from faraway places. His timing was intentional. I mean, the promise in Acts chapter 1 is that these disciples would reach Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And what better way to kickstart this thing than to reach those first two groups on day one, Jerusalem and Judea, it says. So that's on purpose. It says in verse 5, there were devout men from every nation under heaven. And those lists come in verse 9, where um, the speaker there is actually moving from east to west, sorry, from your perspective, it would be this way, to that way across the map. Saying, basically saying there's people from all over the place who are here. His timing was important. It was evangelistic. But how he comes also matters. You notice he doesn't kind of take the, um, the humble approach like Jesus did in some ways. He intentionally draws a crowd. A strong and noisy wind blows through this house. Think about this fire that disperses over the heads of these 120 individuals. This was an intentionally noisy and visible entrance, because then a crowd would gather. These things are signs of divine leading, right? You think of the fire and the cloud that led God's people. This was to draw a group together. And Luke wants to be really clear that in verse 4, that It's not just the the apostles, you know, they had all this time on their hands, so they thought, well, what could we do to get everyone together? Like, what? How could we be seeker sensitive in this, right? That's not what they did. It says in verse 4 And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That means the Spirit is steering this, He's the one who's setting up this kind of a scene. And I hope you would agree that the promise of the Spirit here in this scene does not disappoint, right? God over delivers on his promise. And this jump starts the Great Commission. So that's his dramatic entrance. But then we get into this next paragraph, verses 5 through 13. And this question that the the crowd asks, because they're having a really hard time explaining what is going on. I mean, it's, You know, the wind and the fire and all those things would have certainly gotten their attention. But notice what really they're most uh, curious about. Or the thing that really amazes them is not all those dramatic things. It's the speaking in languages. Look at verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's what really got their attention. So the fire and all that stuff was to kind of gather a crowd and to be a visible demonstration that the Spirit is the one empowering this, but then we get to the real heart of it, which is these speaking in languages. The reason why this is so amazing, there's a couple things going on. One, Galileans were like backwater kind of people, they're like backwoodsers, kind of in the view of this culture. They had heavy accents. They weren't known for their uh, high educational marks on standardized testing. These were not, if you're going to pick a people who are going to be linguistic experts, the Galileans would not have been them. Which is why they say, are not all these who were speaking Galileans? Like, really? These are the guys who are going to do this? I mean, the normal languages that were spoken were Greek and Aramaic in the day, and it lists all these places that had very nuanced dialects that only would have been known to the native people. And here, these fishermen and these kind of low-life people in the eyes of the culture are speaking these nuanced dialects. What is going on? Now, that kind of helps us with maybe an earlier question that you asked yourself, which is what are these other tongues that we see uh, earlier in verses 1 through 4 when it says in verse 4, "...and begin to speak in other tongues." I think the rest of the passage helps us answer, well, what are those tongues, right? We kind of have a couple of options scripturally. They could be other languages, or they could be kind of the undecipherable, initially, gift of the Spirit that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. But it's clear from this text that what's meant by those tongues is that these are foreign languages that are being spoken. Okay, The Greek word dialectos is used to, to refer to the native language that even the crowd mentions, the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians is kind of a two-step process, if you remember that, where the tongue is spoken and then someone interprets. But what's amazing about this scene is there's no two-stepping it. There's just a direct line from these 120 to the native people. You can t- kind of tell from the whole context that we're talking about foreign languages here. Now, what's so funny is we get all hung up about what, what was going on, what the fire looked like, and what are the tongues and all this stuff. But let's ask a more important question What were they saying, right? And you can talk about what they are all you want, but what were they actually talking about? In verse 11, at the very end, after the people are listening, looking around, going, look at all these people who understand. They say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They're explaining God's salvation story. When it describes Jesus later in verse 22, it describes Jesus as a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. These 120 are are sharing God's redemptive story, including the gospel, is what they're doing. And so that raises a question from this crowd what does this mean? Now, they're not saying, what do those words mean that are coming across? They know what the words mean. They're asking a much bigger question like, what's the significance of this, right? What's really going on here? We know that these Galileans didn't just study all night, and now they're speaking, you know, Egyptian. So who's behind this is the, really their question. And like every other time that God does something incredible, there's a divided response, two interpretations of what's happening here. When, when something happens that you just can't explain, you kind of have two options. First, you can humble yourself and say, I, I don't understand what's going on here, but I'm open to what that is. Or you can respond with fear and write it off and say, I'm going to come up with the best explanation that I have, and I'm going to insert it in there because I'm, I'm afraid of what's happening. And you see both of those responses in the crowd, don't you? The humble response is, well, what does this mean? What, what's really happening here? What's the significance of this? And that that question is, is the Spirit is sowing, right? He's tilling up the soil in their hearts for Peter's explanation. You want to know what's going on here? God's fulfilling His promise. But then there's this other group who were afraid. It was still a couple months before wine could have been really harvested well, but they kind of sped up the process to have something. To kind of, they came up with like a Mediterranean two-buck chuck kind of wine, right? A cheap wine. And so they threw it. They, they, the other group kind of uses that as an explanation. Oh, they're just drunk. Basically what they're doing is they're opting out of thinking about what's really happening. Look, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm really glad you're here. I hope I'm not the first one to say that, but I, I'm glad you found us. You must be exploring Christianity to some degree. And as you look for God, I want you to know this, that following Jesus Christ does not mean that you shut your mind off and you leave reason behind. That is not what is required to become a Christian. It's dangerous for anyone to determine what's possible before deciding what's probable. It's dangerous for a person to decide what is possible before deciding what is probable. And look, what, look at how that plays out in this text. Right, the skeptics of the day determined it's impossible that these Galileans could be speaking these languages. So what other possible explanation could there be? Well, they must be drunk. And they put their heads in the sand. There's a lot of evidence that needs to be dismissed to discredit the claims of Christianity. For example, the existence of a world that's incapable of creating itself, our intuition to worship, our appreciation of beauty, the desire to participate in something bigger than yourself, your desire for eternal life. Who's ever had that, right? Where do all those desires come from? A hardwiring that we are made in the image of God and so we hunger with these questions that are unanswerable apart from Christ. But there's even some historical facts that are really stubborn. Like, how is it that the body of Jesus Christ, a body that nearly everyone wanted to find to disprove Christianity, was never found? What explains the start of this church movement where Jews are overturning traditions that have lasted for thousands of years? What could possibly explain that change overnight? Could it be seeing the resurrected Christ? What explains the church? I am not a Christian because I'm simple enough or emotionally unstable enough to believe what is patently false. One of the reasons that I became a Christian was not in spite of the evidence, but because of the evidence. So be careful on deciding what's possible before deciding what's probable. Ruling out supernatural explanations before looking at the claims of Christ is like stacking the deck. So, hopefully that encourages you to continue seeking if you don't know him. Lastly, a spirit for all and a savior for all. Peter is going to answer the question, right? What's really going on here? First he gets their attention and then he kind of meets them on their level. He says, who gets drunk by 9 a.m.? Is that really a great explanation for what's happening here? I love that he does that, just to kind of start off. Kind of calls their bluff a little bit. But then he says, no, 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 let me explain. A long time ago, God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the prophet Joel to say these words. And he quotes Joel chapter 2. Peter says, look, this is essentially the start of a new chapter in God's plan. That's what this is. And so he uses this quote that was written hundreds of years earlier that speaks of a future time to say, this time is now. How do we know that from the text? Those are good questions you need to be asking as you hear preaching. How do we know that? Is this guy just making that up? Where does that come from? First, we know that because in verse 17 it says, in the last days it shall be, God declares and he goes on from there. If you look up Joel 2, the words last days are not in Joel 2. And so Peter inserts them here to explain, hey, this is a new chapter. The same implication is uh, understood in Joel 2, but the words last days grab the attention of those listening to say this is the final chapter. But then he explains and he goes on and says that the Spirit is basically given to all. He says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then he describes what all flesh means by different categories of people. It's easy to forget that the Spirit being given to each follower of God is not uh, something that's always been the case. That it's a unique thing to the church, right? The Spirit would come on a king or would speak through a prophet for a season for the, to accomplish God's purpose. But this individualized sense of the indwelling Holy Spirit is what marks the start of the new covenant. It's unique. He goes out of his way to say, even the servants get it. You think servants get the Spirit? Wow, that is everybody then is what he's after. You might have just pictured the apostles having uh, this ability to speak in other languages, but it's more likely that the whole crew did, the whole 120, because that's the whole point, that the Spirit's given to all. Now, Joel continues on in verses 19 through 20 and describes uh, the day of the Lord that's going to come. And if you look at uh, Joel, there are a lot of people make breaks between verses 18 uh, and 19 because of the shift. I heard a smart pastor describe what, what prophecy is like this. He said it's, it's kind of like looking at a mountain range okay, from a far distance. Where you're looking at a mountain range and it kind of just looks like all the mountains are stacked up next to each other in one big long line. okay. But then as you come and you approach those mountains, you actually see that there's, there's different mountain ranges, kind of different distances from each other. It all looked like it was just one thing, but they're actually, there's maybe even miles between them. There's different ranges and it's much more nuanced and complex than what you initially thought. See, when prophets prophesy, what they see is the straight line of the mountains, and, then, and there's a lot of prophetic texts in Scripture that you read, and there's, a, there's a, an immediate fulfillment, even in the historical context of the book. But then there's language that's clearly at the very, very end, and it's like all those mountain ranges are kind of together in the eyes of the prophet. So, as he's saying, look, the Spirit's being given, the promise is being fulfilled. He's talking about this final day in 19 and 20, but that's clearly a mountain range that's further than the day of Pentecost, right? We know that that's the the great and awesome day of when the Lord returns. So the last, he he continues to quote Joel 2 to get to that verse 21, and it's interesting, he cuts off a sentence from Joel 2 to, to end it here, when it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now he's going to bring that up again in verse 39 to actually say you're a part of that group that I'm calling to repent and believe. But he's like he's like sowing seed right now. Kind of saying, look, the spirit's coming, the day of judgment's coming, and we're calling on you to believe in the name of the Lord. It's finally that time. Do you make the connection between the start of this quotation and the end? Why does God give the Spirit to all? Why would He do that? Because He is going to use all of those Spirit-indwelt people to call on others to respond to the gospel. Do you see? That's why the Spirit is given to all, so that, that Christ would be presented and preached to all. Because His mission is global. It's much, much bigger than just Jerusalem. And so the Spirit is given so that the gospel gets out. You can see that in Joel. You can see that in Acts 2. And that's what Joel had envisioned at the time when God's Spirit has given to every one of his children to preach and to proclaim what God has done through the Messiah before the day of judgment. Now, he's going to go on and make that call and call on them uh, to repent and believe. And we'll get to that next week. I hate to interrupt his sermon, but just for in the interest of time, we need to break it here and, and consider the implications. And we'll look at the rest next week. So let's just stop a minute and see where we've been. Okay? I want you to notice kind of a common thread that's woven throughout these texts. I know it's hot in here, okay? so we're going to get through this. But notice, in the beginning I asked you, notice how the Holy Spirit enters. And so we said that the Spirit makes an intentionally dramatic entrance right? during a really busy time of year. And empowers them to speak in these languages so that everyone would know and hear. And then Peter connects the dots and he shows that the best explanation for what's going on is that God's fulfilling this age-old promise of sending the Spirit, of God's Spirit, and dwelling God's people to get God's news out to the world. Now, do you remember when I asked, uh, you know, the question, why is the Holy Spirit here? What is He here to do Do you see how this chapter helps us answer that question? Do you see that? His entrance tells us what he's passionate about and what he's here for and what his purpose is. How the Holy Spirit enters the scene tells us what's important to him. Now, I don't mean that we should expect Pentecost-type stuff every day, right? We must not forget our place. Some people think that because the Holy Spirit can heal that it means if we twist his arm enough, he'll have to. And that's not true. The Holy Spirit is free to manifest himself as he desires, when he desires, and in the manner that he wishes. That's up to him, right? There's no lever pulling going on from down here. That's not how that works. God is sovereign, and there are seasons where he just pours out blessing on the church to create revival and conversion. And those things are unique. Those are not all the church putting all the strategies and the tips together and they're just the right combination and boom. That's not how it works. The Spirit is free. And just because the Spirit graciously indwells us doesn't mean that He's under our control. He's in us and He's over us at the same time. And that's a good thing. But what does it tell us about His passion and purpose. It's this. God's Spirit wants the gospel to get to every person, tribe, and nation. And one of the reasons why God's Spirit indwells us is to get the gospel out of us. That's what it means. If you're a Christian this morning, then there is an evangelist residing in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in us to reach others with the gospel. Now, Does that mess with your idea of what the Holy Spirit is here for? It might a little bit. And let me try to anticipate just one objection that might be rising up in you right now, which is, but what about all the other stuff the Holy Spirit does, right? I mean, He transforms us, and He convicts us, and He helps us understand Scripture, and He intercedes for us in prayer, and He does all those things. And you're right, He does. And that's a vital part of His ministry, right? We would be nowhere without that. But think about this. Even our personal transformation has a secondary effect, doesn't it? I mean, we're transformed, we're conformed, and that's wonderful, and there's nothing better than having God transform you into the the image of Christ. Nothing better. But that has an intended effect. When uh, my wife and I were in China, we were uh, picking up our, our daughter that sounds bad, but you know what I mean. Uh, we were there to adopt a girl. Um, we didn't just fly to China and pick someone off the street. That's not how it works. But um, I, one of the guys who was with us, he ran a business where he framed pictures. And I just thought, oh, oh, that's like your whole thing? Like, it's like your whole job? You know, I tried to ask it in a way that wasn't offensive. And I had since learned the ignorance was on me, right? I didn't understand, like, how important that all works. But he would say it was, it was fascinating because... He said that the photographers knew that a great picture in an ugly frame was worthless. And even a mediocre picture in a great frame just made it look beautiful. And so his whole business was doing that because people recognize the relationship between the picture and the frame. And isn't that what our transformed lives are doing? They're framing the gospel. It's not that, that your life is the gospel. Your life is not the gospel. The gospel is the saving message about what Christ has done, right? That's the gospel. But our lives do frame it, and they do affect how it's received. And of course, our frames never fully match the worth and the beauty of the gospel, but the Holy Spirit keeps tinkering, and he keeps working and making that more beautiful. So yes, the Holy Spirit does other things, okay? And it's good that he does, but this Getting the gospel out is a part of his passion, and maybe something we haven't thought a lot about. Let me lay out maybe three implications, and then we'll we'll wrap up this morning, okay? Go through these quickly. The first implication uh, for real life in this text is that the spirit that indwells you is there for more than your benefit. Just this basic idea we've been talking about. When you picture a spiritually mature person, who do you picture? And I I picture uh, people like my grandmother who's passed away, who had the joy of the Lord, who played hymns every day of her life, who loved people. That's kind of one of my images that just comes to my mind. But I wonder if too often all we emphasize are things like prayer, which is great. I don't think I'm knocking prayer. Or personal holiness, or maybe love or ministry in the church. But if the Holy Spirit's, one of His purposes for being here is to get the gospel out, then isn't Christian maturity also related to evangelism and sharing the gospel with other people? So maybe your first response this morning is just to consider how do you view the Spirit's ministry? Like, what did you think His job description was? And how does this change that? Second, it means that if you're a disciple of Christ this morning then your concern for spiritually lost people will grow. It will. Living with the Spirit means being infected by His passion to see God worshipped. That's a part of what it means. Living with my wife has changed who I am. And that's a good thing. So I appreciate puns more now. I drink fat-free milk. I eat healthier. I'm a quasi-Niners fan. um, I see flaws in myself, I'm too serious, I'm too task-oriented. Thank you, brother. I'm not expressive enough. So I mean, like, who's this guy? And that those are weaknesses that I'm working on that my wife is exposed because she's not that way. She's a lot more fun than I am, which is great for me. But being in proximity to her has slowly changed who I am, and that's a good thing. People say, I don't want marriage to change me. People like that are delusional, okay? Friendships and marriage are, are meant to change you. It's good that when God said it's not good for man to be alone, it's actually true. Okay, so just let that be true. But just by proximity to my wife, over these last years, it, it's changed me, and it's changed me into just by proximity to her. The Holy Spirit is nearer to you than any other person is. Isn't that comforting? if you just feel like, God, I don't have the heart that I want to for lost people, there is a spirit who is passionate to see God's glory spread to the nations who resides in you. And he'll help you. He'll work on you. He'll change that over time. We have reason to be hopeful because of the passions of the Holy Spirit. That's good news because we have a tendency not to care about others, right? We have all these things that he'll slowly start to change. I wonder if that's why Luke included this for Theophilus, who just going back and seeing that the act and the power of the Holy Spirit would have encouraged him to to continue sharing the gospel and spreading spreading it to other people. So maybe a practical step from this morning might be to start praying for the Spirit's heart for the lost. Maybe that's just where you start. Maybe he's been prompting you already. Is there a relationship that you just know, gosh, I've been, I need to be more intentional about that. And I feel like the Spirit's been prodding me to be more actively engaged in their life. Maybe he's convicting you about how little interaction you have with people who are not Christians. Maybe he wants to help you understand the gospel so that you can explain it more clearly. Maybe hearing about 4 million Manika people in Guinea last week lit a fire under you to pray for and give and, and think about the people who are in other nations. Almost every missionary that comes to visit us says, yes, we need prayer support, yes, we need money support, but what we want most of all is to be connected with the churches and to know that they support us personally. Emailing a missionary can be the result of time in Acts 2 this morning, having a passion to see The gospel spread. And I tell you, it's a simple thing, but if you take time to learn about these things, what God is doing in the world, He will stir your heart to get involved. He will. I'm not naturally a person who's kind of out on the street walking up to strangers and laying out the gospel, right? We know evangelism is more complicated than that. But the Spirit's really been prodding me in this area, and He's just allowing different life circumstances to come along that keep adding to that conviction. Like on Friday, I got to be with Lena Phillips the last time. I got to go to her home and see her and read Psalm 23 to her. She was incoherent, and she was out of it. And I got to talk with her family, who's overwhelmed. And I remember talking to Lena a few months back. A few months back, probably a year ago. I'm like my son Hudson, I don't really get space-time relationship, but um, anyway, a a while ago, um, I was with Lena, and I remember just saying, I've got to get clear with this woman. I need to make sure she knows, right? She grew up in the South, Southern, stubborn woman. I mean, just, she's great. I loved her. I said, "Do do you know the gospel? Do you know who God is? And we talked about it, and she said, yes, I do. And the only time I've seen Lena get emotional is when I asked her this, do you know where your family is at? And she started crying and if you know lena lena doesn't cry okay right? she was bawling and on friday i just thought i wonder if she has just been faithfully praying for her family all this time or i wonder if there's regret there it's another just incident in my life where the spirit is prodding me saying you've got to get the gospel out you've got to get it out so maybe he's prompting you through circumstances as well. The last thing and we'll be done. The last implication is that the spirit is powerfully present when you are fearful. The spirit is powerfully present when you are fearful. God will not underdeliver on his promise. He said that we would have power to witness because of the Holy Spirit. And too often we back away from opportunities with the gospel because we can't see how it's going to work or it doesn't seem very probable or it seems like there's going to be rejection on the other end. So how would this text help us in those moments? Okay, a couple of things. One, remember the Spirit's power. 3,000 people were transformed by this gospel message preached in the first sermon by an apostle who just had lapsed just a few weeks ago. 3,000 people. We're not lacking in power because the the Holy Spirit is present with us. He's reversed the Tower of Babel to make the gospel clear. And the Spirit who came then is the Spirit who's with us now. So remember the Spirit's power. Remember that some people rejected. Some people rejected the preaching of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I mean, how else do you explain people rejecting the teaching of Jesus. How do you say no to that? Like, it's Jesus. And yet we get to situations in evangelism and think, oh, I've got this nailed down, right? I've got the perfect... You are not a better evangelist than the Holy Spirit or Jesus. And we need to anticipate that there will be rejection. Sharing the gospel and fearing rejection is kind of like wanting to get a splinter out without the sting of poking your finger. My kids would oh just get it out but don't make it hurt. Like, well there's kind of a relationship, right? There's I mean the nature of the gospel, it saves and it offends, and it'll do both those things as we share it. So remember that some rejected. And remember, lastly, that the Spirit was given to all flesh, even people like us. You know, when you're interacting with a person who doesn't know Christ, the person they need most is not you. It's the Holy Spirit. That's who they need, and he's present there to help. This is the major reason why he came. Sharing good news is his passion. Do you think he's going to hang you out to dry when he came for this purpose? Is he going to do that? Have you ever asked for a person's help in their area of passion? Like, you you know, a guy who loves to fix cars, and so you're like, well, I got this thing, can you come over? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Or a woman who loves to hold babies, right? Right? You don't even have to ask sometimes. They just come up to you and steal babies from you, right? Because they they, it's something they love to do. I love books, okay? And so when people come to me and ask for book recommendations, normally if one of my children aren't bleeding, I'll stop and take the time and we'll figure it out, right? Because I'm passionate about books. It's not a burden to help when you're passionate about that thing. The Holy Spirit is passionate to claim a people for the glory of Jesus. He is, and he's interested in helping us. It's not like he's back there with a clipboard going, well, yeah, that tactic's a wrong one. You know, scrap that. He's supporting us. He wants to help. That helps us. How might he answer this kind of prayer for our church? One of our stated desires in merging churches was to be more outward focused than we are and to be more intentional about getting the gospel out. And it's good to know that we have all the help we need in our helper, isn't it? See, getting the gospel out is not about having enough confidence in yourself. It's about trusting in God's promise to empower your witness. It's not about you. It's about what God has provided in the Holy Spirit. So just to wrap up, the spirit that's in you is there for more than just you. The spirit's passion for the gospel can become our passion and will. The spirit is powerfully present when we are fearful. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you specifically because it says in your word in this chapter in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he being Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus, you were instrumental in the sending of the Holy Spirit. Many of your encouragements to your apostles in your final hours were to say, there's going to be a counselor and a comforter who comes. It's to your advantage that I go away. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive is with you. You said those things so that we would enter into the mission that you've stated with, with confidence in your ability. So God, may you take this purpose It is so clear in Acts 2 for your Holy Spirit. And may you stir our hearts and move in our midst in unique ways to cause us to join you in your passion to claim a people for the glory of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.